Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. I'm Harriet Minter, and I'm here with my co-presenters, Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. This week, we are talking to Mina Salami, the author of the blog Miss Afropolitan, all about what it's like to be an Afrocentric feminist. Plus, our take on the news, including Boris and Burkas, and whether or not what you weigh actually matters. One, two, three, four! First of all today, it is time for our news review and we're kicking off with a really new piece of research that's just come out this week um, talking about gender-based violence in sport. So the research um, looked at, it's commissioned by the International Working Group on Women in Sport and it looks at essentially violence against women and girls, female athletes from the people within the sporting workplace. Um, on the phone to talk to us, we have Elizabeth Pike, uh, one of the researchers on the project. Hi, Elizabeth. Good evening. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about why the study was commissioned in the first place and the findings? Yeah, so as you said, the study was commissioned by the International Working Group for Women in Sport. Um, and that working group was set up in 1994 at a conference in Brighton, which was the, the first World Conference on, on Women in Sport. And the working group's remit is to help to develop a sporting culture that enables and values the full involvement of women in, in every aspect of sport and physical activity. And part of the commitment of the working group is that they produce a report of the recorded progress for women in sport every four years, and that then inf um, informs a legacy. Okay. And so they commissioned uh, myself and a, a team of international researchers to do that review this year, and, and as it happens, um, four years ago as well. Um, what we do is we, we survey everybody who signed up to what was called the Brighton Declaration on Women in Sport, which was also the outcome of that conference in 1994, mm -hmm. which basically establishes a series of principles um, that all the signatories sign up to commit to, to enable women to be safely involved in every aspect of sport and physical activity. And when we're talking about gender-based violence in sport, what does that encompass? So the, the definition of gender-based violence from a, a European Commission study is basically it's violence that's directed against somebody because of their gender um, or it's violence that affects people of a particular gender disproportionately. And we're really talking about verbal violence, non-verbal, physical violence and sexual harassment and abuse. And how many young women does this affect? Uh, the truth is we don't know. Um, we, we don't have good prevalence data um, about how much there is happening generally or specifically in sport. 
And there have been some, some really good studies that have been done in other countries. So, for example, in Germany, there was recently a study done of elite athletes that indicated that about a third of elite athletes have experienced some form of sexualized violence, and about one in nine of them have experienced severe sexual violence, by mm -hmm. which we mean assault or rape. Um, and really worryingly from that, only about half of the clubs believe that it was a relevant topic to deal with. Oh, my goodness. Matt? As you were talking, one of the things that came to mind was that sport is another industry like the music industry, like the film industry, where there is a power dynamic typically between men and women, women, um, uh, female athletes uh, out there on the field, usually male coaches, male physiotherapists, managers, and the dynamic of if you, know, if you succumb to my advances, I will help you get further. Does, is that part of, of the interplay here, do you think, that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, our reports focus on what's actually being done rather than what the experiences are. But certainly the evidence that we have about gender-based violence is one of the reasons that we don't know very much about how much there is, is we think that there's an under-reporting. Mm. Part of that under-reporting might be because... The, the women don't want to talk about it because they're so keen to become elite athletes, Olympians, world champions. Sometimes they want to protect other people, and that might include the perpetrator for the reasons that you said. Mm. Um, also, women often don't report it because they're ashamed. They might feel that although they're the victim, they're to blame. And in many cases, they fear further violence if they do report the violence. Is it also part, possibly part of the culture? So I can definitely think of um, male locker room culture. I think Sir Alex Ferguson famously throwing, or allegedly famously, who knows, throwing a football boot at uh, David Beckham. Um, that culture of what happens in the locker room, is that also one of the, the, the things that might stop people from misreporting? Because they've seen it so much, they're not actually taking into consideration that it's wrong. I mean, we, we don't have the evidence for that from our report, but what we do have evidence for is that we really need to increase female leadership in sport exactly for that reason, to actually challenge that culture. So we know, for example, in the UK that there's been a recommendation that 30% of boards should be made up of women. We know that where there's a gender balance on boards, not just in sport, but in any industry, that the organisation performs better and it challenges that dominant culture. And at the moment in the UK, only about half of the national sports federations meet a target of having 30% of women on their boards. And the, the, the higher up the hierarchy you get, the less women there are. And Elizabeth, you're saying that there's um, a, a, you know, quite a high proportion of cases that you've identified or people saying that you know, they've been a victim of gender-based violence. Do you think that because of your report, we might see more of the perpetrators of that becoming um, being prosecuted or being highlighted? Because, you know, apart from the case of that gymnast, I've not... Gymnastics coach. The, the gymnastics coach, yeah. I've not heard you know, anything in the media about any, but clearly this is a, a big problem for the sports industry. It is a problem for the sports industry. Of course, there were the, the male footballers um, who were um, interviewed last year. Just mm -hmm. this week, there's been the case of an Irish female swimmer talking about her experiences of gender-based violence when she was aspiring to be an Irish Olympic swimmer. Um, certainly, a, a recent European Commission study recommends that there needs to be provision to prosecute and punish the perpetrators at the same time as we protect the athletes. 
And so we would hope that you know, the findings of our report and other research that's been done uh, might take us some way on that journey. Okay. Um, and Elizabeth, just to finish, what, would you, what action would you like to see clubs taking? Getting more women at the top seems important, but what should they be doing when somebody comes to them with a complaint? Mm. So our, the main recommendation from our report is that we really need to develop gen, what we call gender mainstreaming strategies. Mm -hmm. And mainstreaming is ensuring that gender perspectives and attention to the goal of gender equality is central to absolutely everything that we do. Um, so to give you an example, where I work at the University of Hertfordshire, we have the Athena Swan um, report. Mm -hmm. And the Athena Swan says that every time, it, it recognises that every time we develop a policy, every time we schedule a staff meeting, every time we decide where resources are going to be allocated, we're giving attention to how that might affect people of different genders. And we feel that that gender mainstreaming needs to be rolled out throughout all sports organisations. And I think just one other thing, just to say quickly, you know, it's great to be speaking to people in the media who are giving this serious attention, is we also need to improve the way that women are covered in the sports yeah. media. It's, it's not just more coverage, mm -hmm. it's better coverage, because mm -hmm. there's a recent report that says that women are being increasingly sexualised in the media coverage of women's sports. And all the time that's happening, it's perpetuating a culture within which gender-based violence might be possible. Amazing. That's Professor Elizabeth Pike, um, part of the research done by the International Working Group on Women's Sport into gender-based violence in sport. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I'm actually really shocked that that is that they're so far behind on this. I would have thought, given particularly the press attention around the things that are happening in the US and that just actually the growth in women's sport over the last few years, I would have thought there would have been more awareness and understanding that i i hear you but i actually think to elizabeth's last point we're not we don't cover women in sport enough yeah. given that women are actually getting to the world cup of you know various mm -hmm. we, we we don't hear about it so therefore we don't talk about their stories um and i you know going back to what i was saying about locker room behavior and uh this the, that sort of culture the the macho yeah. culture of you know, shouting at people and uh almost abuse to get the best out of someone i uh, i think that's what needs to be broken down before you get people actually looking at the interplay of gender within it and i, I think it's much easier for that work to be done across the film industry um because of the me too movement but sport hasn't really had its own me too it needs yeah, to find yeah. out it needs to figure out what its own yeah. um movement is led by women saying this is what we want yeah. this is how we want to uh participate in a conversation about gender-based violence or sexual violence or um or, or how we want to change the narrative around how how we're uh, discussed in the media i, I think yeah. women need to lead that yeah because it's yet another yeah. example isn't it this which is what the whole me too movement is which is when people get confused about you know oh i can't flirt with a woman again is it's about power balance so mm. yet again in another industry where there is uh you know a power imbalance and people abusing those positions of power as a coach as a trainer whatever position you must be in to basically you know be a perpetrator and i'm just like yeah 
And the vulnerability of people coming through. Yeah. If you're, and they're if so you're, young, so many of them. So yeah. young. And how would you know, like you say, if you've got that whole sporting culture, which is aggressive, you've got to do this, or a, how, it must be really difficult to tell when it's abusive mm. and when it's for the good of your sport. And I can see as a young person yeah. how you would never know the difference. Exactly. If you're 11, 12, mm. and you've watched older athletes being shouted at in, in the pursuit of tough love, yeah. when it's your turn... Yeah. Like, you don't know any different and so without I guess it, you'd almost need to be struck or hit for you to go whoa maybe, maybe this isn't right maybe this yeah. this level of regression is not right mm. but it shouldn't have to get that far yeah I agree it is as you said that the famous throwing the boot incident which I don't know if it did or didn't happen but it's just ridiculous mm. really yeah now if you have had your head stuck in the sand for the last week you might have missed Boris Johnson's comments on burkers and specifically liking burkers to bank robbers yes um and it's caused a much bigger debate about whether or not the uk should be following france's lead and banning the burka emma what do you think of this do you know what? It's been nearly every single news channel has been covering this. And mm-hmm. I'm very annoyed at Boris because he has a role of responsibility. But the constant narrative was around women and what they're wearing. And I'm just like, why are you concerned? No one's harming anybody. Why can't you just let them get on with it? Like, I just don't, I don't understand why we have to have a massive conversation about a, a, a choice of clothing a woman wants to wear. And what I find absolutely hilarious about it is that there's, there seems to be this narrative, which is that women wearing burkas do want to hurt people. That yeah. who knows what they're doing yeah. under there? What horrendous things could be happening? Yeah. Have are, is there, are we massively prosecuting them? I'm not seeing that. It's bonkers yeah and I there's a lot of narrative around well you know a lot of assumption right as people are assuming that any woman who is in a burqa is being forced to wear that by a man and and I you know you can't everyone's an individual and we've heard from lots of women it's their choice to wear it and if they're being forced to wear if you're being forced to wear clothing by somebody that is a different issue that is well I mean you know the government is forcing women to wear high heels at work if their employer requests it so (laughs) Boris needs to talk about that himself now what do you think well in the wise words of Henry Stewart who wrote a piece a while ago I think in the evening standard no woman in a burqa or a hijab or a bikini has ever done me any harm but i was sacked without explanation by a man in a suit men in suits <laughs> must sold me pensions and endowments costing me thousands of pounds a man in a suit led us on a disastrous and illegal war this is henry stewart saying this not me um and uh, men in suits led the banks and crashed the world economy other men in suits then in, then in, in in increased the misery to millions through austerity. If we're to start telling people what to wear, maybe we should ban suits. Did I forgot this about that? This is what Henry Stewart <laughs> that wrote. Is and it, it's brilliant. circulated on social yeah. media. And who wears a suit? Boris wears a suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, for me... we can you cannot say that because of a piece of clothing someone is dangerous someone should not be allowed in society Uh, i'm not even going to get into that because i I think it's a it's a void point but what i do want to say is that there are countries that are now banning the burqa and other um and the niqab and, and and other forms of clothing and denmark is one of those countries and women have been protesting in copenhagen um at fashion shows and all all sorts this week to say actually we stand with a 
woman's choice to wear what she wants to wear and if uh, Muslim women are standing up and saying I want to wear this we stand with her and I think we've got some audio of one woman talking about that. I see it as a part of my faith and now it has also become a part of my identity which is why I feel so strongly about it uh, and besides also being a very spiritual choice for me I feel that now it has also become a sign of protest against this ban. And so that was a woman in Copenhagen speaking to Sky News, just talking about her choice to wear uh, a burqa. And there are other women coming forward off the back of what Boris has said, saying, you know, I'm not a bank robber. I choose to wear this. I wear this because I don't want men looking at me. I wear this so I can go down the street about my daily life and not have people staring at me. So I just, you know, let's let's leave the women alone. Why, why do we? Th- why do these governments though think that they can legislate against the burqa, but they don't legislate against any other clothing? Is there any other clothing that has been banned? Well, I feel like actually where we helmets, need to get to, is... uh, you're not allowed to wear hel- helmets in certain yeah. places. Yeah, but yeah. that's security. Well, so they would say it's the same thing, right? Which is if your face is entirely covered, regardless of what it's covered by, it is the same thing. Yeah. But I think where we get to when we look at the burqa is that it, it feels particularly Islamophobic. You know, it, it feels essentially racist. Not feels, it is. It is, mm. yeah. Um, and I really, what I want to say about legislation around it is it's coming at it from completely the wrong angle. If you are trying to push this legislation through on the basis of we feel women are being forced to do this and that they don't have the right to express themselves and it's another way of oppressing women, well then actually, you know, great that you're caring about that but that means put money into refuges put money into social services put money into counseling systems put money into schools and education systems so that they can talk to women about how they want to handle that yeah don't just try and legislate what they're wearing that is a very good point harriet very good point i know i'm gonna run for pm on it (laughs) (laughs) or foreign secretary because maybe there's gonna be a vacancy who knows so our next story is still about i guess women and their bodies in a way jamila jamil emma Tell us. So uh, Jamila Jamil had a a response on social media probably about six months ago. And I think it was in response to uh, the Kardashians posting a picture. I think it was them. And they put on what their different weights were, how many kilos they weighed. And she was outraged by that. And she posted a picture in response saying, well, I weigh and listed all her kind of achievements and things that she's really proud of, which set off a little kind of like mini internet meme. She's now set up her Instagram account and she's turning it into a whole entire movement now so people now are posting and using the tag i think it's at i underscore way and again really celebrating their achievements to try and counteract kind of society i don't know i feel like what women weigh is often a topic of discussion it's often obviously a a success measure and what she actually wrote was i weigh lovely relationship great friends i laugh every day i love my job i make an honest living i'm financially independent i speak out for women's rights i like my bingo wings i like myself in spite of everything i've been taught by the media to hate about myself bad word kg so she's saying you know it doesn't really matter about uh weight i see i have two sides to this one and i'm almost going to steal your comment harriet which is i should be able to put whatever weight i am out there and it mean nothing but the flip side of her moving away from this is actually when people put certain weights out there we all have a response we all chip in if it's over a certain amount then people make assumptions if it's under a certain amount people make assumptions and equally on instagram 
it then becomes a competition of how many nice things you can say about your life <laughs> and you know the lovely holidays and you know I think what she has said is is authentic it's about friendship it's about things that are actually meaningful I'm sure at some point it's people talking about how many houses they own or yeah. just all of the superficial things in life and if we're really going to have an honest conversation about the fact that um yeah, we sh we should consider ourselves more than what we weigh, what we look like, the fact that we've got a boyfriend, and all all of the other things that society says we should have. You know, I I don't think this is the start of a big you know a big movement towards a different way of thinking. If I'm being honest, but a lovely gesture. I agree. I think it's a nice idea, but ultimately, wouldn't it just be lovely to live in a place where it just didn't matter? where we just didn't need to run accounts about not talking about women's bodies because we just weren't talking about them in the first place. Yeah. Mm. That's that's the utopia I'm going for. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. If you've been listening to the show before, you will know that we like to talk about feminism a lot. Uh, but today we are going to broaden our knowledge and expansion because we are really lucky to have Mina Salami with us uh, one of the 12 most influential women in the world great <laughs> list to be on I think um, and founder of a blog that really tries to look at feminism differently Mina thank you so much for joining us today um, so it's I wanted to talk to, <laughs> I want to talk to you about your blog uh, I've completely lost the name of it. I'm so sorry Ms. Afropolitan yes. there we go thank you Ms. Afropolitan Tell me what makes it different. Um, I mean, maybe the name actually is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. So Ms. Um, is the feminist title yeah. mm -hmm. um, for a woman who doesn't want to be revealing her marital status, obviously. And Afropolitan is a contraction of Africa and cosmopolitan. Yeah. Um, and so um, you could say that that, that kind of encompasses um, what the kinds of topics that my blog tackle so it's a feminist perspective of uh, a feminist and an africa-centered perspective on global topics such as power knowledge culture philosophy sexuality beauty etc just to jump in there so what just so i understand what is something that you'd be covering say that's in the mainstream british press through a different lens what what different perspective would you be giving on um, so, I mean, basically anything that I cover, um, I cover from an Africa-centered feminist perspective because that is who I am as a writer and a social critic. Mm -hmm. um, but to be more precise, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment, so I haven't written a lot of commentary mm -hmm. recently, which is why I have to to think about this but um you know writing about decisions that have been made um in parliament about increasing women's leadership mm -hmm. um i when i wrote about the riots that happened in 2012 like mm -hmm. whatever i would be writing about mm -hmm. um whether it's happening in the uk or on mm -hmm. a global scale or if it's uh something that Beyonce has done or mansplaining <laughs> or, you know, whichever topic, um, I would generally look at it um, from a feminist, African feminist perspective. And what that means um, is that I am incorporating an Africa-centered way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm, for instance, I might use um, African writers, African theorists, um, mythology from around the continent mm -hmm. and so on to, to elucidate on the topic that I'm addressing. Nice. And so tell us more about your background. How did you get started? Right. Um, so I, I basically think that I was always a blogger of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, of course, blogs didn't exist when I was growing up in the 1980s. Um, but insofar as blogging is a kind of conversational journaling, if you like, um, that was something that I always did. And my parents used to joke that, oh, she was a blogger as a child. I right? just had to think, what did we do in the 1980s? How did we get, I actually had to go back and like, what was the medium then? It was like newspapers, letters. radio. Yeah, letters. Yeah. Newspapers, yeah. radio, yes. right. Yeah. Okay. So I would have been yeah. one of those people if I lived in the 19th century who would always be writing letters to newspapers. Right. Um, and so in my school newspaper, I would write columns of topics like the future of Nigeria or mm -hmm. advice on how to be happy. And so I always had that spirit in me. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I discovered blogs, um, which was 2006, uh, so by then blogs were becoming something that you could you could set up even if you didn't have technological expertise. Mm -hmm. Prior, you had to be a coder or yeah. something. Um, so now you had MySpace and Blogspot and all of this coming up. Um, and so I instantly started blogging the moment I found out about it. Um, and I blogged for a few years before uh, launching a WordPress site, which eventually became oh, a good old WordPress. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had about three blogs, mm -hmm. three or four, um, before I founded Misafropolitan. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the journey to becoming a blogger. The journey to becoming an African feminist blogger um, starts a lot earlier and, of course, is, is way more complex. But um, I grew up in, in Lagos, um, a, a city in Nigeria, the largest city in Nigeria, the largest um, black city in the world mm -hmm. with about 15 million people, um, a very exciting place that I love, um, and but also of a deeply patriarchal society and so as an observant child as this blogger of sorts mm -hmm. in, in quotation marks um, as a child I was already observing that men had all of the the so-called head positions in society so they were heads of state heads of the army heads of companies heads of the family and in school when we were learning about my country's history we would learn about all of the men, the great men who had done this, that and the other, but not anything at all about women's um, achievements. And this is despite the fact that in the very year that Nigeria was, was founded, um, there was a huge women's riot against colonials, um, the colonial power. Um, and so I had a, a strong feminist awareness already as a child. Um, then as a teenager, after about five, six years of a dreadful military dictatorship in Nigeria um, and growing up in a, a middle class household, which in Nigeria is not equivalent to a middle class household here necessarily. So tough times, basically. Um, so my mother and I decided to relocate to Sweden for a few years till things settled down. And we moved to Sweden, despite that we are Finnish. Um, because my mother's sister lived in Sweden. And so I'm 13 and I'm sort of reluctantly moving to Sweden because I love Nigeria, <laughs> despite the patriarchy I have, you know, and especially at that age, you know, you're, you had a crush on a guy and all of that stuff. So the last thing I wanted to do was leave. Um, but anyway, I find myself in Sweden and I'm starting a new school. I don't speak the language. Um, and within the first month, I had been physically attacked, um, called the N-word, mm. 
chase down corridors, like all kinds of crazy things. So where I had prior to that had an awareness of my gender, um, this was the first time that I was, I became forced to have an awareness of my race. And what um, year was this? This was 91, okay. 1991. Um, and I lived in Sweden eventually for 10 years. <laughs> and, you know, years during which I came to love the country, of course, as well. But it was a, a real struggle. And, you know, I think what is interesting is that even though Sweden is one of the most feminist countries in the world, if not the most, um, because of the racial politics that I felt like I just needed to survive on a daily basis, I wasn't even aware uh, of the feminist struggle until much, many, many years of living there. Um, but basically, all of this life experience is is shaping in me mm. um, the the awareness of being a racialized and gendered woman, right? Um, and so by the time I, I leave Sweden, I moved to, to the U.S., to New York for a while before coming to London. Um, and I just was fed up with the status quo, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, just really understanding on a visceral level that my experience as a person that I was um, and the person that society was pushing me to be, um, that that discord was something that I couldn't uh, live with for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And my writing stems from that. That's a very long oh, way to answer why answer. I'm black. You <laughs> said previously that you feel sexism and racism have to be fought together. Is that because of that background or? Mm. Yes, um, to a great extent, um, but also because of the actual reality of what sexism and racism are and how the two cooperate um you know like we always say that we need to fight these things intersectionally yeah. but sometimes i don't know if people really understand why mm -hmm. um and basically if you think about how western uh white supremacist patriarchies um operate how they can maintain their position it's through the exploitation of of countries in the global south to a great extent. And so if we as feminists in the West are not addressing those kinds of topics and the racial politics that come along with all of that, then we're not addressing patriarchy yeah. because it will just continue to, to empower and replicate itself. All right, we are going to keep uh, talking to Mina here. I just wanted to ask you, how did you... You obviously started your blog from your personal point of view. How do you now feel about it that it's grown and it has become something where people really feel like it's changing the world, that it's having an impact? How has that changed how you've seen it? Um, I don't think it has changed how I see it very much, mm -hmm. to be honest. I um, I still write and blog for the same reasons that I started to write and blog, which really is, in a nutshell, to... to um, to describe things that I feel are unnoticed or, mm. and unacknowledged um, and that I feel are very important for us to be discussing. Um, at least, you know, if, if they haven't been discussed at all, then or from the perspective that I see it. Um, so that is still the same thing that motivates me, um, as well as the desire to change the status quo, you know, which which remains um, the same for me and I think always will. And a key motivation to doing what I do is because um, 
we aren't liberated. I don't think that uh, women's liberation, which uh, you know, it started, or let's let us pin it down to the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. 70s as the time when it really manifested in a strong way. Um, I, I don't think we've even begun scratch that journey. Surface, yeah. yeah, I can't wait. We're going to keep talking about how we scratch the surface here on Badass Women's Hour. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Badass Women's Hour XL with me, Harriet Minter, Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. Uh, we are also lucky enough to have in the studio with us tonight Mina Salami, author and blogger and founder of the pan-African feminist blog, Miss Afropolitan. Uh, Mina, thank you for being with us. Thank you. So before the break, we were talking about uh, this kind of, I guess, shift from liberal feminism into a wider definition of it. So when we talk about liberal feminism, what we're really talking about here is kind of, for me, I think, for me, like white Western feminism. Is that how you see it as well? Um, not necessarily, actually. Mm-hmm. I think, well, Western, yeah. but I also, I think that there are a lot of women of color who also uh, can be liberal feminists. Yeah. And I know that the narrative tends to skew in that way, but I think we need to be careful of that because that's another kind of... Yeah. Uh, exclusion. Um, I mean, if if black women want to be liberal feminists, <laughs> then that's also fine. And many are. I mean, I'd argue that someone like Beyonce is a liberal yeah. feminist, right? Because uh, the way that I differentiate liberal yeah. feminism from, from, let's say, radical feminism, mm-hmm. um, which is a feminism that I would be more prone to, to align myself with, um, is that liberal feminism is much more focused on the equality element of women's lives um, where radical feminism is more focused on the liberation element Um, because uh, and I I mean both are very important 
I think, but equality is not always liberating. Um, you know, being a soldier in the U.S. Army, for instance, um, is not necessarily liberating for women at large, even yeah. though it's equal, having equal rights to men to participate in, in warfare. So that's what I was going to ask. I needed the example yeah. so, okay. so I could have the difference. I didn't study gender studies or, my, you know, I came to my feminism late. So it's that understand as you were going through equal versus uh, liberation. Can I give me another example? Um, I mean, with with because everything I'm when we're talking, you could yeah. depending on the issue, you can probably flip between actually my position here is equality and others you might Absolutely. say actually my position here is liberation. I think you could definitely do that. And these what I'm saying is not the standard. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no textbook answer to this. Yeah. This is my personal take on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with all of the, com the many of the key conversations that we're having in the feminist space today, um, you know, the, the gender gap, mm -hmm. women in leadership, we are tackling them predominantly from an equality perspective. Right. Um, so, you know, it is, of course, we want to have more women leaders. Mm -hmm. But if the kind of leadership that they represent is patriarchal, um, then it's not liberatory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is a very important conversation that we need to have as feminists at this point where so much uh, feminist and anti-racist and all progressive language is being co-opted by uh, corporations, mm. you know. And so we really need to focus on what freedom would look like for women um, and for people of color and definitely for women of color. Mm. Uh, so... You know, so many questions within that. As you were talking, I think, but what does freedom look like for, for yeah. a human? Full stop. It, yeah. I believe the highest, the, the most important thing a person can achieve in their life is freedom and knowing what it means to be free and realizing their own sense of personal agency. And I, 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 I wish everyone could experience that. But there are so many questions around what that actually is. Is it being free from consumerism and um, the idea around sort of the material world? Is it being free from, I don't know, the emotional way? Like there's so many things. I'm just like, oh, what, what would that look <laughs> like? Yeah, uh, I think for me, most importantly, freedom is uh, having a mind that cannot be manipulated. Okay. Because the oppressor, the tyrant, the, mm -hmm. the abuser, um, what they always want to do is control your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so having a mind that cannot be manipulated is a, is at least a great chunk of being free. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that everybody um, would struggle in that path mm -hmm. in, in uh, uh, what Bill Hooks would call a white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, even white men and white people and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, because we all have obstacles and hurdles mm -hmm. that we have to climb in life. But um, when you look at it that way, then it's also easier to see why if you're female, if you're a person of color, a combination of these things, if you're from a working class background, a disabled, a different sexuality, etc., there are so many more obstacles. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many more manipulations um, that are happening in society. Uh, so many, you know, we're constantly being taught through knowledge production through historical narratives etc that oh as a woman you you can't uh voice your opinions you know that's not ladylike that's mm -hmm. not feminine mm -hmm. um you shouldn't express your sexuality whatever it is mm -hmm. um and all of these things are 
basically the manipulation of the mind. Um, so these are the kinds of hurdles that I, I think we need to overcome. Mm. My <laughs> mind's a bit blown here because I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of aware of it anyway. But there are so many deep layers to this, mm. which you, you know, you've obviously studied and really understand. Do you ever find that because you can, you you must be like beyond woke now in terms of your knowledge and what you've seen from your <laughs> studies, from your life experiences? Is that does it become really like exhausting after a while to keep yeah. fighting, to keep being radical, to keep pushing on? Do you find like when you're so yeah yeah involved and so aware of everything that's going on? Right, that's such a I'm actually blown mind blown by your question. <laughs> I think it's a really great question. And I and what did you just say? Overwoke? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think that's a compliment. Um, no, I don't um, because. You know, dis discovering freedom and having a mind, cultivating a mind that cannot be manipulated, which I use the word cultivating because mm -hmm. it is a process. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the consequence of that is is joy. It's a life uh, where there is pleasure um, and purpose, etc. So, you know, in in doing the work that I do, because I want women to be liberated ultimately what that means is that we thrive you know mm. it's so we have to have fun in this process mm. right because if you think of feminism as a it's a centuries-long women's tradition a political tradition an intellectual tradition etc etc now it's since it is centuries long at least two um, there's a chance that it might be still more centuries to come, right? And we all are not going to live more than one century at most. Um, so we have to make the most of that short time. And I think what that means um, for me in terms of freedom and liberation is is not complying with patriarchy and with racism and with all of these things. And once your mind is free, you know, there's... I, that's the only way to enjoy life. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're constantly complying and stuck in in, in limbo. Mm. Yeah. Do you think? Do you believe there was ever a time where that is what was real and what was achieved? One of the things that's become very apparent to me, and when I was thinking about your centuries comment, is we're in a period now, and who knows what the norm, what the status quo will be in another hundred years. But there generally seems to be cycles. And I believe there was a time when women were almighty and powerful. And actually, uh, you know, there was a completely different narrative among races. And maybe we even shift back to that, but it will not be in my lifetime. And so I guess my question is, it's a bit of, can you tell us about a time when it might have been different? And do you think it, you know, how long will it take for, for that shift to, to occur? Because I also know societies that were, we were talking about it on the show before uh, I was in um, I think Croatia and they're moving back to a, a sort of a, a a religious construct around uh, family and the way of being because they're rebelling against everything they experienced through the war and it's like that's a society that's going back to even older traditions and values so you know lots of lots of questions there tangled up but yeah. How long will the shift take, basically? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> um, and I wish it were short. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, I, even looking back historically, there's mm -hmm. a lot of debate around whether or not there have been matriarchies, mm -hmm. for instance, and whether or not there have been uh, racially harmonious 
yet diverse societies because, mm -hmm. of course, you can have racial harmony when it's a, 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 a homogeneous mm -hmm. group of people. Um, and I think for me, the from everything I've read about that, I wouldn't quite go with the idea that there have been matriarchies. Um, the most progressive society that was somewhat modern um, out of all of the ones that I have been able to study, I think was Kemet, which mm -hmm. is ancient Egypt. Which is what I was thinking. Yeah. Of, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's such a, uh, we use it for an example of civilization in terms of architecture, etc. But I think also like the social values and things mm -hmm. like that, that Kemet had is, would be a good example to study today. Mm -hmm. But that said, it was an incredibly aristocratic society. Mm -hmm. um, and so even though women had power they were all women in really high positions very wealthy and elite mm -hmm. um so which is not the kind of society that i would raise as an ideal so i think even when we have these examples in the past um there's a lot of problems with them which i think is quite motivational because what we have the space to do is to to create utopias um you know to to envision a kind of society a kind of world that we've actually never had before where mm -hmm. there is um, democracy and equality and liberation and all of these things but we can obviously pluck from history here and there but yeah Kemet is a like if I could go back yeah. to one point in history that that would definitely that was be my frame of reference yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes I wanted to ask you about um, a quote that you gave which said I grew up in Nigeria exposed to feminism not by white women as default I'm not a victim of white supremacy I'm a survivor of it can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I mean, because I often get this question that, oh, do you feel excluded from feminism? And I just think, why would I call myself something that I feel excluded from? Yeah. Um, I very much feel included. Um, it doesn't mean that the inclusion of black women in feminism has been smooth at all. Um, there is there's such a insidious and racist legacy within the feminist movement that we have to address from a historical and a contemporary mm -hmm. perspective. But I definitely um, feel included. And I know that, you know, my feminist uh, ancestors have included women who were of all yeah. racial backgrounds. So, so yeah, um, yeah, that's that's the motivation behind that. And you said also that your view of the world is Afrocentric rather than Eurocentric. For people who don't know the difference, can you explain it a little um, I mean, well, the way that we we look at the world today in so all of the explorations of the human mind, um, of society, of culture, of social relations um, are really Eurocentric. So whether we're looking at, let's say we're looking at the notion of power, um, we have, uh, what's his name? Robert Dahl, um, who has this, he defined power as A, being able to influence B to do okay. what A wants. Mm -hmm. You might have heard it. Um, now, why? So this is a, a Eurocentric way of looking at power, I would argue, and a male-centric one. Um, so in, in some African societies, you might find that power is, you know, something more internal or the ability to collaborate mm -hmm. rather than to influence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so this is this is what I mean when I say that my perspective is Afrocentric. Um, I but I obviously haven't, you know, grown up and also being yeah. of European heritage, I yeah. 
I can mix the two. Mm, That's really interesting. Can you tell us about your book? You're you're in the middle or the early stages of writing a book. Can you tell us a a bit about what it's called, where the idea came from, and what you what you hope for this book? I hope that I get it written. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, that's my biggest hope for it. Um, And then, yeah, it would be great if if at least a handful of people read it. Um, So my book is titled Sensuous Knowledge, and it is a a book, so basically exploring um, society, social relations, the the, the relations between the races and the sexes, um, between culture and mythology, um, etc., from from an Afrocentric and feminist perspective. Um, and what else did you ask me? If how it's going? Yeah. Um, or uh, no? Just what your hopes were. Really. Uh, where, yeah. you, where you got the idea to even do the book? I mean, it sounds amazing, but like, where did you, where was the moment where you went, I need to write a book? I think I've always wanted to write a book, but it's like somewhere in my subconscious. And then now having blogged and written commentary for almost a decade, um, it feels like a natural progression of things. But I think the the real clincher has been uh, people emailing me and saying, oh, can I quote your blog in my dissertation? Or Mm -hmm. can we use your blog in our course? And and just feeling like if I had a book, people would know that they can use it. But I think there's still an uncertainty. Um, yeah, because I suppose digital. if you're studying, can you cite a blog as a le- legitimate you, And source? the thing is that you yeah. can, but because a blog might take down a page oh. and then your citation would no longer In- have, a, okay. have a reference. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's a bit risky for yeah. people to do. Uh, you definitely need yeah. a book. I'm sitting yeah. here. I feel like I need to, I well, don't know. I just feel like, can you teach a course or something? <laughs> oh, I just feel like I want to just sit and listen <laughs> to you and I want you to explain yeah. lots of things and give me a whole nother layer of understanding of feminism that I just, is just <laughs> totally probably not on my radar. And this for <laughs> me is, is the challenge because my friends that talk about feminism eloquently and um, the debates that I hear they are generally people from my in my circle they've studied it or they're widely read they've taken the time to read and formulate their own thoughts I've come to this very late and so I know my I guess my religion is entrepreneurship so I can tell you about personal agency I can tell you about um I guess, a more in uh, you know, personal responsibility and an individual perspective on how you navigate through the world. And it's only now with this show and, and speaking to people like yourself, I'm like, OK, there are more perspectives, but I don't have the time to go and read 60,000 different books. I need someone to bring it all together. We need for me. Me. <laughs> me and so I need segment on the book. show every yeah. week. <laughs> so, I, so I can uh, you know, have one place to start to build what is going to be a new narrative of my life and that's not to say I'm going to lose everything that has got me to where I am now but actually I don't I don't have the time to do the work that my other friends have done and so I think this text is really important. It's so fantastic that you say that because I was just explaining to someone and I say this often that my job as a social critic and a public intellectual Mm. on feminism is to spend basically 24 hours <laughs> of the day like reading everything knowing everything thinking about everything mm-hmm. so that other women who don't have the time to engage with feminist topics because they're doing other work mm-hmm. or they have a big family or whatever it may be um so that I can then disseminate to mm-hmm. them what I have taken in and the way that I see it in a short space of time and you know and that's the beauty of what 
what women's networks are, I think, and, you know, even a show like this is that you bring in people, experts, and we all sort of share the information that we have spent all of our lives accumulating in, in little snippets. Yeah. Mina, it's been wait. so lovely to listen to you. Thank I you. also absolutely love the ti- the working title. Let's call it working title yeah. of your book, <laughs> which is Sensuous Knowledge. It's out in 2019. And when you described kind of understanding and learning as mm. and freedom as pleasure and joy, mm. I just I was like, I know I now know exactly how the book is going to be. It's going to oh. be awesome. Thank you so much for Thank joining you us. Thank you so much Thank for you. having if me. If people want to hear more from you, if they want to follow you, where should they? Where can they find you? They can find me at misafropolitan.com and social media my handle is misafropolitan instagram facebook and twitter it's the same handle fabulous thank you very much the fabulous mina salami One, two, three, four. this has been badass women's hours best bits uh, if you liked it please do rate review and subscribe us we love that five stars um, or come chat to us on social media you can find us at Badass Women's Hour HR at Badass Women's Hour or come talk to us individually. I'm at Harriet Minter at Emma Sexton and at Nat D. Campbell. And we'll be here again next week, same time, same place. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.